We have begun a series called Every Body Matters. In the first sermon in this series, we talked about true freedom that we have in Christ, not only from sexual sin, but for love of God and our neighbors. Last week, we talked about singleness. We talked about how we have the opportunity to use the gift of singleness for the sake of God's kingdom. And today, we're talking about same-sex relationships. Now, when I wrote this sermon, I wrestled with what to say and what not to say. I want this sermon to be true and good, spoken with charity and without any kind of self-righteousness. So I'm asking for your prayers for this whole sermon. One sermon cannot do justice to this topic, so I hope that each of you feels free to reach out to me to ask questions and to have dialogue. My goal is to be clear, compassionate, and challenging to everyone. Now, typically, there are two sides that are presented about same-sex relationships. They are presented as mutually exclusive, with no overlap whatsoever. All the solutions are obvious, the answers are clear, and the results are predetermined. But I do not believe that. Based on my understanding of Scripture and the wisdom that has been built up over the church's history, I do not think that I have to pick one or the other. I believe that there is a way to acknowledge what Scripture teaches, as well as the suffering of the gay community, as well as a flourishing life that Christ wants for every single one of us, regardless of orientation. But before I say anything else, I want to cover this sermon with prayer. Heavenly Father, you love each and every one of us. You made us to love you and to love our neighbors and to be loved within the church. You make promises to us and you always keep them. You came as one of us in Jesus Christ and you demonstrated your love while we were still sinners. Thank you for your love. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. From the beginning of Scripture, we read about God's will for marriage. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see the famous story of creation. And at the pinnacle of creation, God creates male and female. We read this verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and and female, he created them. And after God makes male and female, God blesses them and says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. God wants the human family to reproduce, to grow, and to multiply. Fill the earth and share in God's kingdom as stewards. In the second chapter of Genesis, we get a more intimate view of God's creation of mankind. God creates a woman out of the side of the man named Adam, and Adam responds this way to the creation of Eve in chapter 2, verse 23. This, this woman, Eve, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. We see both 
similarity and dissimilarity in Adam's statement. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, we are similar. We have common ground. But there's also dissimilarity. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, and the Hebrew word for man is ish. So isha was taken out of ish. Woman was taken out of man. There is dissimilarity. And this likeness and this difference is why, according to the next verse, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The creation of male and female, a man and a woman, is why a man leaves his family of origin and is united to a woman. Marriage is built on this similarity and difference. And the union of marriage is sexual in nature. They are united, and the Bible says they become one flesh. They give their bodies to each other. This is why couples vow on their wedding day, with my body, I honor you. This scene from the very first pages of scripture shows us God's ideal, his design, his purpose for marriage. One man and one woman in a one flesh union. And God calls this good. And any deviation from this example is less than ideal. From the beginning, God creates boundaries for sex. Only in the context of marriage can sexual union be good. And any kind of sexual union outside of that context is less than what God intended. And in only a few chapters later in Genesis, we hear a famous story about human beings crossing these boundaries. And really throughout the Old Testament, we see humans cross, crossing God's boundaries. One of the most famous stories is Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's nephew is living in a city called Sodom, and he receives two guests who the readers know are angels, but they appear or look like men. And we read in Genesis chapter 19 that the men of the city, the men who lived in Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house in which Lot was staying, in which his guests or visitors were being sheltered, and they called to Lot, who's on the inside, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now the word know is a euphemism in scripture for having sex with. And so these men want to have sex with other men. Now there are many layers of evil in this situation, right? The inhospitality due to guests, um, the fact that these men want to rape this, these visitors um, against their will, but at the same time, there is a desire for men to have sex with other men. And before and after this story in the Old and New Testaments, the Bible refers to Sodom in only negative terms. The first chapters of Isaiah, Amos chapter 4, Zephaniah chapter 2, Jeremiah 23, and Genesis 13, before this even happens, all of them talk about the sins of Sodom. Ezekiel 16 might challenge your understanding of Sodom's sins because Ezekiel talks about Sodom ignoring the poor and needy and being overfed. So there are other sins involved, but Ezekiel also talks about the sexual sins of lewdness and wickedness being uncovered. Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, and Jude all refer to Sodom negatively. 
Jude specifically says in his short letter in the New Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality. The Old Testament doesn't just share this story of humans crossing God's boundaries. There are so many examples, all the way from David and Bathsheba to Genesis 19, of human beings crossing God's good boundaries for sex. God doesn't want his people to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he gives them a, the Torah or the law to show them a holier way for sexual ethics. He doesn't want them to be like their pagan neighbors. He doesn't want sexual immorality. He wants sexual morality, sexual holiness. And there are both commands and prohibitions regarding sex and marriage throughout the Torah. Two of the most famous of these commands are in the famous Ten Commandments. The seventh command in the top ten list is against adultery, cheating against your spouse by sleeping with someone who isn't. You shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment, and the tenth commandment actually goes even deeper into the heart. You shall not covet. You shall not be jealous of. You shall not envy what doesn't belong to you. This prohibition is against a, the habit of the heart or the state of mind that longs after and nurtures a craving for what doesn't belong to you. And included in that list is your neighbor's wife, someone else's spouse. Already, God is showing us how much sexual ethics matter to him. He wants his people to be sexually holy, sexually different than their pagan neighbors who revel in sexual immorality. Later on in Leviticus, we get more commands about sexual immorality. There's a whole list of things that go against God's will, but one of the things mentioned in the list, it corresponds perfectly to God's boundaries created in Genesis. God says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. Now, you can see a through line starting in the first pages of the Bible. God creates this boundary and says, sex and marriage are for only one man and one woman. We see humans cross that boundary in Sodom. It's not the only boundary that humans cross, but they do cross that boundary in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God reaffirms for his people in the law, in the Torah, and specifically in Leviticus, this very boundary. And if you think the New Testament is any different, that's not true. Jesus reaffirms this boundary in his own teaching. Sometimes people will say that Jesus doesn't talk about sex or marriage, but that's just not true. In Matthew 19, he says, have you not read? Have you not looked at these stories in the Old Testament that the one who made humanity, that is God, at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus combines these very two passages in Genesis 1, 27, and in chapter 2. The difference of male and female, which is created by God, is the reason and the basis for marriage and sex. After Jesus reaffirms this boundary that God established on the first pages of Scripture, Paul does the same in three different letters. 
In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. And then Paul describes that by saying, Women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. In 1 Corinthians 6, which was read today, Paul also writes a list of behaviors unacceptable in God's kingdom. He talks about fornication, idolatry, adultery, male prostitution, and he also talks about those who practice homosexuality. In Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul writes another list of unacceptable lifestyles. He talks about lawbreakers, rebels, the ungodly, sinful, the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and for those practicing homosexuality. So, the boundary that's drawn at creation is reaffirmed in the Torah or the law. It's reaffirmed by Jesus and reaffirmed again by Paul. Now that's one side of the debate that's presented very often, and I agree with that. And at the exact same time, I want to reassure and say very clearly that God loves everyone. God loves every single human who has ever lived, is living, and will ever live. Whether you are gay or straight or otherwise, God loves you. If you are a man attracted to other men or a woman attracted to other women, that fact does not in the slightest change the fact that you are made in the image of God. If anyone says otherwise, they deny your full humanity, and if anyone says otherwise, they misunderstand Scripture. God wants every single gay person to love him and to love others and to be loved by others. Now, there is nothing about being gay which prevents you from obeying God's greatest commands to love him and to love your neighbor. The only thing standing in the way is sin, which is universal to all people, regardless of orientation. There is nothing about being gay that accepts you, that makes an exception for Christ's commands to all Christians to love one another. So if a Christian refuses to love you because you're gay, they are in direct defiance of Christ's commands. If you're gay, God's will is to save you, to redeem you, to call you his son or daughter, to spend all of eternity with you. Christ died for the justification of your sins. He offers forgiveness of those sins to you, whether you are gay or straight, and the Holy Spirit wants to dwell inside of you. And despite all of those truths, the church has absolutely failed to love gay people well. Christians have been some of the worst bullies of gay and lesbian teens, making their lives in school a living hell. Christians have watched from the sidelines as bullies beat and ridicule gay kids without lifting a finger or standing up for them. Christians have caused these evils, ignored these evils, downplayed these evils, and come out with weak responses to them. 
if you are gay and you are trying your best to follow Jesus, you might find nothing in the church to help you. No support group, no accountability, nobody there walking alongside you. I can only speak anecdotally, but gay and lesbian Christians I know say that the church is one of the worst places to come out as gay. At school, you might have some friends who assure you that they love you. In Hollywood, you'll see lesbian and gay actors and actresses succeeding in their careers. At book people, you will see a whole section of memoirs, books written by and for people who know what you're going through. But at church, if you're gay, you might pray for just a neutral response. But you might expect a hateful response. And in this environment, in the church, you might think, well, there are basically two options, gay pride or gay shame. You can either have gay pride and leave the church or stay in the church and have gay shame. Maybe you can leave the church and you don't have to be ashamed of your desires. You can have sex without guilt and marriage without any legal ramifications. You can have intimacy with your spouse. Maybe you can adopt kids one day and raise them as your own family. But you think, well, I'll have to give the church and worship and Jesus up for that. Or you can stay in church, continue to worship God, keep Jesus, and hide all of the desires you feel. And even if you do get the courage up to tell people you fear the worst, that you could be kicked out of your home, that you could be targeted as if you're the only sinner in the pews, and you could think, well, I'm going to live alone for the rest of my days. So these are my two options. Gay pride or gay shame. At the exact same time, I would want to say to anybody watching this video that we are not the first to discuss this topic. Whenever a topic is controversial in 2020, in our time, then we think maybe we're the first ones to talk about it, like we discovered this issue. But if you actually read Christian theologians through the centuries, you will find that this topic is not new. Sex between people of the same sex is mentioned outside of the Bible, at least by the second century. Aristides, Polycarp, Athenagoras, many Christian theologians knew about sex between people of the same sex. They knew it, it was real, it existed. And here's the thing. Christians have always and everywhere agreed on the boundaries set by Scripture. For the first 15 centuries of the church's history, there is universal agreement from all living Christians that the boundary established in creation and reaffirmed by the Torah and reaffirmed by Jesus and Paul was true. For the next 400 years, Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox Christians could not agree about a lot of theological issues, but they all agreed that sex between people of the same sex was against God's will. That is, until the late 20th century, a new question was asked. Could it be that two Christian men or two Christian women could enter into a covenant and be married just like a man and a woman? 
And for the past six decades, a series of arguments have been put forward, and Christians have been talking about this topic in a new frame. And I want to address those arguments to the best of my ability. The first goes something like this. Well, sexual laws throughout the Old Testament are just like food laws. The Jews had to follow kosher eating rules, and that was good for them at the time, and now Christians don't, and we know better. But in the same way, we used to think same-sex marriage is wrong, but now we know otherwise. The problem with this idea is that sexual ethics is actually made more challenging as you read from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus and Paul both say that kosher laws are not binding on Gentile Christians, but both Jesus and Paul maintain very strict standards regarding sex. Jesus says out loud that the laws in the Torah were God's concession to hard-hearted people. That's his way of saying the laws in the Torah are easier than my commands. Jesus had a stricter interpretation, a more difficult path. As we talked about last week, Jesus and Paul basically gave two options, celibacy or marriage, which when Jesus taught that out loud, his disciples talked about how difficult it was. If anything, the sexual ethic of the New Testament is more difficult than the Old Testament, not easier. So when we read from the Old Testament to the New Testament and see a relaxation of laws regarding food, we see a stricter interpretation regarding sex. The second argument that's put forward to affirm same-sex marriage is based on Christ's fulfillment of the law. Basically, the idea goes, well, Christ fulfilled the law, and so we don't have to live by anything in the Old Testament. We live only by things we find in the New Testament. Now, it is true that Christ did in fact fulfill the law, but that does not mean we can simply move past it, ignore it, or even disobey it. That isn't the argument in Jesus' teachings or Paul's. Paul says in Romans that the law is holy and the commandment is righteous. He says that the law is spiritual. In his first letter to Timothy, he says we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. When we actually read the stories of uh, the law in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see that God himself is the giver and ultimate source of the Torah. So we know that it can't be evil in and of itself. David writes countless psalms about his love for the Torah, and the prophets criticize Israel for disobeying the Torah. So Jesus' fulfillment of the law exempts us from following the ceremonial laws but Jesus binds us to the moral law. Jesus himself says he wants our righteousness to surpass the Pharisees. Not that he wants us to have an easier moral code. We are freed from sin, of course, but that's not free to do whatever we want. We're free to obey the moral laws of God. To dismiss the Old Testament as a whole, is to dismiss the Ten Commandments, the creation of Adam and Eve in the image of God, God's promises to Abraham, which we believe that we have inherited through Christ. And Christ did not dismiss any of those things. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The third argument that affirms same-sex marriage 
is the council in Acts chapter 15. It's based on this story in the book of Acts. And basically the argument goes something like this. God included the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit led the church to include Gentiles. But in order to include them in the church, the Jewish disciples decided to relax all of the rules because the rules were too hard for them to follow. So in the same way, the logic goes that we should relax sexual ethics for gay Christians today because following those rules are too difficult. The problem with this interpretation is that all of the Jewish apostles argue for their interpretation by appealing to the Old Testament. Paul does it, James does it, Peter does it. They refer to the Old Testament and say that in the Old Testament we already see evidence that God had always planned to include the Gentiles as Gentiles. And yet, when they write the letter to the Gentile Christians and say that they're not required to get circumcised, they still say abstain from sexual immorality. Included in Acts chapter 15 is a prohibition against, the, and the Greek word for this is porneia, where we get the word pornography. They don't require Jewish ceremonial laws, but they do require Christian morality as articulated by Christ. And porneia, that word for sexual immorality, is prohibited in 11 books in the New Testament. 11 different books all say that Christian life is avoiding sexual immorality. Part of following Jesus is saying no to porneia. And there is every reason to believe that Jews in the first century would have included sex between people of the same sex in the term porneia. So no comparison to Acts chapter 15 really works. Now, there are lots of other arguments to affirm same-sex marriage as Christians. And we could talk about those a lot, and I would love to talk with anyone about those in person. But I want to move to an idea that I think all of us can agree with. And that is this. All of us have rules about sex and marriage. I have never met a person in real life who has said that there are no rules. Even in our culture, the most common, the most universal rule is that sex must involve consent. Sex must involve willing participants. An unwilling person to be forced into having sex is wrong. In Christian circles, we often go beyond consent. We say that consent is required, but marriage also has rules. Marriage must begin with vows or be lifelong or must only between two adults as opposed to more than two. So we're all in the business of rulemaking. We think that sex is important. We think that people shouldn't be forced into having sex. So if all of us are in the business of rulemaking, then no one is exempt from that. We all think that sex is important enough to have rules and constraints. But here's the thing. Each one of those rules I just mentioned has been rejected or ignored in some culture at some point in history. Whether it's consent or vows or promises or lifelong marriage or limiting marriage to two people or uh, limiting sex to adults, all of that has been ignored or explicitly rejected some, by some culture sometime in some place. So my question is, for anybody who's watching this, Christian or otherwise, where do these rules come from? Are they just social constructs that we can ignore? Or are they morally binding on everyone? 
How do you know that you just aren't picking the ones that you like or care about or that your culture teaches is important or not important? Because if we do just pick and choose, all we do is become arbitrary. But in order to not be arbitrary, there has to be a source of authority that goes beyond preference or social construct. And I think the best way forward, which is also profoundly difficult, is to accept God's boundaries and rules about sex, not to pick and choose our own. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I don't think we have to choose between the two predominant sides or options when it comes to talking about same-sex relationships. I really believe that there is a better way forward. And here's the thing. I think we need to start with Christ's command to take the plank out of our own eyes. It has been immensely hypocritical for straight Christians to pick on gay people. When Jesus warns us against hypocrisy in the Gospels, he describes the Pharisees like this. He says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And I think that verse perfectly describes the church's response to the gay community. It was so easy for us to point out all the passages in the Bible about same-sex sex. But meanwhile, the church had countless marriages falling apart, rampant porn addiction, and pervasive abuse against children. And rather than address any of those things, what we decided to do was pick on gay people. Even today, straight Christians will tell gay Christians about these passages in the Bible just like I did, but then say, good luck, I hope it's not too lonely being alone. What we do when we do something like that is lay a heavy burden of celibacy on gay Christians and yet fail to be a community of love and fellowship and hospitality. We close the doors of our homes and expect gay people to live the rest of their life alone. We're just like the Pharisees. So instead of singling out or picking on gay people, we could acknowledge that all of us have desires that are broken and selfish and bad for us. From as long as I can remember, I have had the desire for too much food, too much of the wrong kind of food, for the wrong reasons, and at the wrong time. I didn't choose those desires. I've just always had them. So the question is not, do, do we have bad desires? The question is, what can be done about the broken, enslaving desires that we have? And the Bible's answer is that we can have freedom and salvation in Christ. Which means that we should not preach a salvation that is found in becoming straight. If you're gay, you don't have to become straight to please God. You please God by following Jesus and the lead of his Holy Spirit, by loving God above all things and leaving every single idol behind, by loving your neighbor as yourself and serving the church and honoring God with your body, by showing the love of Christ to your neighbors and to your enemies. So I will never, ever, ever, ever say to a gay Christian, the answer is to stop loving people. That's not the answer. I will say, I want you to know the love of God every single day of your life. I want you to be loved by the church, and I want you to love others, but based on God's definition of love. Because that's the thing that's so broken in our culture is to define love for yourself. 
But we don't get to define love however we want to. If a married man has sex with someone who isn't his wife, he can never say that he's being loving. That doesn't fit God's definition of love. I want Christian men and Christian women and straight Christians and gay Christians to love and be loved well. And God is not against same-sex love. But I don't think we should ever reduce love to sex. Christ's call to you, if you're a gay Christian, is not to stop loving, but to love according to God's definition of love. I want all of us, every single one of us, to know the love of God, to love him, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, but according to God's definition of love. I want to wrap up with uh, the good news because I'm taking way too long. In Christ, we are not defined by our sexual sins or broken desires. After Paul writes about sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, he preaches such good news. After all these lists about sinful behaviors and lifestyles, he says, that is what, su what some of you were. Past tense, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the way forward for every single one of us to be washed in the waters of baptism, to be justified and made right before God, to be forgiven of our sins, and to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a better way forward. And I hope, my hope, is that all of us will take that way forward together.